Well, good morning, church. How's everybody this morning? Did anybody get up and think, like, where did spring go? Anybody else? Like, I got up here to preach at 9 o'clock. My, my toes were, like, freezing cold. I was like, what is happening right now? My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and I consider it a great honor this morning to be able to spend a little time with you as we open up God's Word together, and we ask God to teach us something new that we might grow and be transformed into the people that he wants us to be. We've been in the middle of a series called Wisdom in the Wilderness. Has this been good for anybody? Have you enjoyed it? All three of you, good. Okay, good. Yeah, okay, great. Now, when we, when we started preparing for this series, it was like, gosh, how do we do a whole series on like eight verses of Scripture? How do we kind of do that? But it's amazing how this passage of Scripture finds itself all over the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in so many different relatable places. And I think today, too, you'll see it's amazing how God takes this and, and is really expounded upon in multiple different places. So my prayer, my hope this morning is that God would teach us something new as we open it together. Um, we have been looking at what it looks like to live in the midst of wilderness, you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 finds himself tempted in the wilderness, but we oftentimes in our life as well find ourselves in a wilderness kind of season. We have defined it in this kind of way. Wilderness is a time or a place that we are stripped of all of our comfort and self-sufficiency. You might say it like this. It's times of trial, times of challenge, times of testing, sometimes of no fault of our own, sometimes because something else, something else, somebody else has done, and sometimes it's a spiritual thing that God leads us into. Maybe even this morning, you are still in the midst of Lent, and you're counting down the days now. You're getting close to chocolate, coffee, Netflix, so forth. You've been denying yourself these things for the reason of being able to recognize that you need God. You need him only. And so as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ next weekend, we culminate this Lenten season. But maybe this morning, even as you came in here today, you've experienced a wilderness kind of week, a wilderness kind of month. It's been a trial. It's been difficult. I want to encourage you this morning that the two passages we're going to look at today, I believe, show us that God wastes nothing. If today you are feeling pain, if sometime in the past you felt some kind of struggle, God will use that to cause you to become the kind of people that he wants you to be. He, he, he will not shortcut the process. There's no shortcut to spiritual maturity. There's no bypass of the process. Like there is wrestling and there is pain and that's actually what causes the growth and God will waste none of it. So we're gonna look at two passages this morning. The first one is in Matthew chapter four. It's actually the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It's the very first thing that happens. He's baptized in the Jordan and then boom, he goes into temptation in Matthew chapter four. Then he begins his ministry for three years on the earth. Then at the end of his ministry, we're gonna look at one more passage in John 12, which is where Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time before he is arrested and he's crucified and he's killed. It's a particular day called Palm Sunday. If you're sitting here like, why are there children walking around with palm trees in the middle of the service right now? That's because today is Palm Sunday. It's, it's reminiscent back to the time that Jesus came into Jerusalem for the very last time, beginning Holy Week as we march toward Easter next weekend. Here's what I've found about wisdom in the wilderness. Wisdom in the wilderness has to be something that we've learned and experienced on our own. Almost always, it's difficult to be able to learn it from somebody else, something that we have to experience. And so um, tomorrow, I'm actually leaving to go backpacking with a group of high school students here from the church, which is a bit shocking to me because I can't believe any high school students would sign up to go into the woods with me or Daniel Stavanis after we shared our bear stories during this series earlier. I promise we'll be fine. <laughs> they must lost words. We're going backpacking for a couple days during spring break, and so I'm excited to go back into the woods. The truth is, when I got into ministry, that's what I thought I was going to do with my whole life. 
I was a youth ministry major, but I was also an outdoor leadership minor. And my goal was to like do camp ministry, have kids in the woods all the time, experience God in that kind of way. I was actually applying for camp ministry jobs all over the country when Mount Horb said, hey, do you wanna work here full time? And I was like, okay. But luckily, Mount Horb gave me the opportunity to continually take students in the woods for many, many years. Now, to train for this, I actually had to do an internship. And so during a summer during college, I actually went home to my home church in Indiana. My dad was the youth pastor at that point in time. And so I went home for the summer, leading backpacking trips, rock climbing, all kinds of things. And during that trip, I had to take 15 days to go out west to Oregon with an organization called Outward Bound, if you've ever heard of Outward Bound. It's a really, really great organization that's wilderness training. So I flew out to Oregon. I knew nobody in my group. I was um, gonna be in a group of about 12 people. So they picked me up at the airport. We drove across Oregon, which I didn't know Oregon has like desert. You might know that? Like beautiful desert area. We drive through the desert. We get to the river and it's called the Deschutes River. And for 10 days, we were gonna do 100 miles on the river going all the way up to the Columbia River. And so we were gonna learn how to captain rafts through like rapids, class one through class four. It was gonna be a really, really great time. So we get to the side of the river, we, uh, we load into the boats, and we start going down the river. I don't know anybody. We have a couple of leaders throwing the boats with us, and within 10 minutes, we come to our first rapid. I remember thinking to myself, what have I got myself into? 10 days of this. And as I'm thinking and pondering this, all of a sudden, the leader of my boat says, okay, everybody off into the water, uh, nose and toes up. We'll get you on the other side of the rapid. It's time for your first rapid swim. I said, a rapid what? A rapid swim. Like, what? You want us to get into the water and then we're gonna float? There's a perfectly good boat right here. So, no, no, you gotta get out, nose and toes out of the water, feet down river, don't die. We'll pick you up on the other side of the rapids. So, we're like, okay. So, we jump into the water, and as soon as I hit the water, I regretted my decision for two reasons. Number one, the Deschutes River comes out of the Cascade Mountains, it's snow melt, it is freezing cold. Like the kind where your body doesn't work anymore, kind of cold. So I hit the water, that's a bad thing. Secondly, I can see the rapids ahead of me above the little bit of ripples that I was in the river already with, and they were much larger than the ripples that I was a part of. I thought, I'm never gonna make it through this. I'm just gonna die, this is gonna happen. So instantly in my head and my heart, I, I felt myself trying to do two things. One, I wanted to grab the boat and pull myself back in right away. Or I wanted to turn and swim to shore as fast as I possibly could go. But I didn't take either one of those choices. I had to go through the rapids. There was no way around it. So sure enough, we floated through the rapids. For the next 10 days, every single day, we had to have a rapid swim for the very specific reason. If we happened to be going through a rapid and we were to fall out, our bodies would instinctively know exactly how to respond. As soon as you hit the water, nose and toes out of the water, feet down river, and just go through. Make it out the other side, don't die. For some of us, maybe even this morning, life feels like a rapids. It feels like a river. Like every day when you wake up, you're like, okay, nose and toes out of the water, head above water, just make it through one more day. This is what the wilderness feels like from time to time. It feels chaotic. It feels out of control. But it's in these places that if we allow ourselves, God to teach us something, to give us wisdom, to grant us wisdom, it will be the very thing that prepares us for what is next because God wastes nothing. So what I want to really look at this morning is what do we do? What is our natural response when we find ourselves in a wilderness place? How, how, do we, how do we train ourselves to be able to listen to God and hear him as opposed to seeing the chaos and the out-of-control nature and want to do something different? Get it back in the boat. Go to the side of the shore. Because I think hardwired inside of us, we have a desire for some kind of solid ground. 
when things feel chaotic, we have hardwired inside of us a search for stability or for some kind of comfort or some kind of uh, a place we feel safe. And I would argue that many of us this morning, when you came in here today, it's exactly the first thing you did. Maybe even you got out of bed this morning, you came to church today, it's because there's something about this place. When Grace Marie begins to sing on stage and worship starts happening, man, it's our favorite thing to close our eyes, hands in the air, and just turn our attention to God. Maybe it's a place of comfort. It feels like solid ground when everything else is chaotic, when everything else is going crazy. For us to have this moment to connect with God, it feels like something good. And I believe it's because deep inside of us, we're all looking for some kind of way, some kind of response to find something solid. But here's what I've noticed in my own life, and I think it's true probably in yours too. If our first response is not to turn toward God and worship, and find our foundation in him, then we will look some other place into some other thing because we are all made to worship. We all worship something. And maybe even this morning as I say that, you're like, no, 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 not me. When worship starts, I'm like, you know, arms crossed, waiting for the next thing to happen. Not me, I don't really think about God like at all during the week. I'm not very spiritual. I've not been to church in months. Like I'm not very spiritual. I don't, I don't have any kind of worship nature to me. I would argue that is absolutely not true. We all worship something because we're all looking for some kind of stability, some kind of solid ground when things become chaotic. We feel like we're in the wilderness of life. We're created to worship. You, you can't help it. So some of us in the room, we actually worship at the altar of our careers, It feels like a solid thing, something we can rely upon. When things get crazy, we just pour ourselves into it. We worship at the altar of popularity and power. We we worship at the altar of Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. We worship at the altar of travel baseball or a relationship of some kind, boyfriend, girlfriend, or a spouse. We worship substance, something we can smoke or drink. We worship at the, the feet of hobby or recreation. It's a way that we receive some kind of stability. We all worship something. And in wilderness time, when things feel out of control, chaotic and difficult, we will naturally turn to some kind of object of worship. And if it's not God, it'll be something else. Here's a certain way to determine what you worship. If you wanna know, okay, when I'm in the wilderness, what do I turn to? Here's a great way to understand and know this. Number one, pay attention to your time, attention, energy, and affection. Pay attention to your time, your attention, your energy, and your affection. If you know where that time is spent, that affection goes, you've got a really good chance to determine this is the thing that I must worship, the thing that I'm relying upon. A couple of years ago, my family was going through a really difficult time. And me personally, I was going through a really difficult time. There's a lot of factors to it. We had recently lost my father-in-law to cancer and our family was trying to figure out how to kind of navigate that. And it was really, really painful. Um, we were trying to parent two wonderful and challenging children at the time. We were trying to figure out how to do all of that. We had another one that had just kind of entered the scene as well. And so we were trying to figure out how to navigate that. We had sold our house and we were living with my parents in their little brick ranch for eight months. All of us together as a happy little family. And it was wonderful, but it was a challenge. And so I found myself really wrestling through all this kind of stuff. And it felt chaotic. It felt wilderness to me. It felt like something that was unstable. The things of the church had changed pretty drastically, and I was trying to figure out how to kind of navigate that whole thing. All of it was kind of working together in such a way that I was finding myself looking for some kind of comfort, some kind of distraction. And so maybe like some of you in the room, what I did was I turned to something called fantasy football. Isn't that funny? 
Nine o'clock didn't laugh either. But I, I feel like this one's too close to home for some people in there. No, it was the fall, and it felt like something that would distract me from everything else that was going on. So I spent a lot of time. I, went, I wanted fantasy football domination. And so I turned a lot of energy towards that. And it was a distraction for me. It felt like something I could kind of turn to in the midst of all that was going on. It's just one example of all the different ways, all the different things that we turn our attention to when it comes to a time of wilderness, a time of chaos. For you, it might be something completely different. And here's the problem. Some of the things that we turn our attention to are a bit innocuous. Like they don't really matter that much. But some of the things we turn to are incredibly damaging. Some of the things that we worship, that we turn our time, attention, energy, and affection towards can be the kinds of things that ruin our relationship with our spouse, that rock our relationship with God, that cause us to begin to doubt who we are and our worth. Some of these things that we worship are not helping us in any kind of way. In fact, they're hurting us in all kinds of ways. But it's a good indicator of where we're looking for stability, comfort, and solid ground. This dynamic that we've just talked about is all a part of the final temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter four. We've been visiting this passage of scripture as Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He, he went without food, he fasted. And after fasting, he was tempted first by Satan to turn stones into bread. And essentially the temptation was this. Listen, don't rely on God to provide for you. Provide for yourself, do it on your own. Give in to your cravings. And last week, Grace Marie Ward did a great job, if you were in here, uh, talking about the, the second temptation. And that second temptation, Jesus was tempted to throw himself off of the temple as a way to test God that surely God would rescue him. Both temptations Jesus says no to. And he rejects them in the exact same kind of way. As Satan tempts him, he quotes scripture to rebuttal each and every time. And Jesus is victorious, but he has to be. And here's why. Matthew chapter four is a replaying, a retelling of the Jewish people's travel through the wilderness after they exited Egypt. It's called the Exodus. In the Exodus, God led his people out and for 40 years, they traveled through the wilderness. The problem was they continued to be disobedient. They grumbled and complained. They didn't obey God over and over and over again. It's the very reason they found themselves in a 40 year kind of wandering and so Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, is not by mistake. He's going to be victorious where the Israelite people failed. He's going to be obedient and faithful where they weren't. And so Jesus faces down the first two temptations. Then we come to the third temptation. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said. If you bow down and you worship me, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord, your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. So the third temptation, the last temptation in Matthew chapter four, Satan takes him to a high mountain and he has Jesus look out from the mountain to see all that the world has to offer, all the splendor, all the kingdoms. And he says to him, Jesus, this could be yours. It could all be yours. It's reminiscent of power and control. And, and Satan is saying to Jesus, you, you could have all of this. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. That's the only caveat, Jesus. It could all be yours right now if you bow down and worship me. Here's the funny thing in the reality of this passage. Everything that Satan is offering Jesus, Jesus is going to get anyway. 
On the other side of the crucifixion, on the other side of the resurrection, the Bible says that every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus gets all the kingdoms of the world. They all end up being his anyway. What Satan is trying to do is cause Jesus to bypass the process. If you bow down and you worship me, if you trust in me for all the things that you're looking for, Jesus, for the power, for the control, for the rule, for the reign, if you bow down to me, I will give it all to you right now. It could all be yours. This is the temptation to short-circuit the process, to bypass the suffering and the brutal death. I believe this wisdom in the wilderness may be one of the most valuable we could possibly gain. And the reason is because of this. We are tempted daily by the evil one in the same kind of way by offering us all these lesser objects of worship that seem so promising, all the things that we just talked about earlier. And the temptation goes like this. We are tempted to believe that our time, attention, energy, and affection, if it's given toward these things, then we will feel fulfilled, powerful, in control, and comforted. If you just worship these things as opposed to God. And the wilderness is a hard place to be, and so it's a tempting place to want to rush out, to grab the boat, to get to the shore, as opposed to going through the hard places that God is wanting to take us to. Satan loves to tempt us and to tempt Jesus in the passage to bypass the process and to settle for a lesser God. You might call it actually an idol. An idol is something that promises a lot, but it can never deliver. Satan says to Jesus, if you bow down and you worship me, that would mean Jesus is no longer worshiping the Father, but now he's turning to a lesser God, something with less power. It's an idol. Idols show up all throughout the scriptures. You may have heard of some of these idols, but in the Old Testament, there was all kinds of idols fashioned by human hands, out of stone, out of wood, out of gold or metal. And oftentimes, these different idols, these statues would be created and connected to some kind of false God for different kinds of reasons. And almost always, the people in the Old Testament, a lot of these pagan nations, would create these idols because they were trying to find a way to experience a full and fulfilled life. So they would have an idol for the fertility god in order to have children, a god toward, an idol toward the god of harvest, so they might have a great harvest of crops, a god of war, a god of weather, among many, many others. Each one would have an idol that they would worship in order to experience the fulfilled life. And it was always promising more and always under-delivering. Under promising so much that it could never possibly pay out on. What's interesting is where does Satan take Jesus to tempt him? To a very high mountain, it says. The third temptation, a very high mountain. Again, Jesus is playing out this Israelite story. Where's the last time we know about the Israelite people being at a high mountain? It's actually at a place called Mount Horeb. You may have heard of it. At Mount Horeb, the Israelite people are at the base of the mountain and a guy named Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments from God, to have a relationship with God. While he's gone, you may know this story, what do the people do? They take all their gold, they melt it all down and they make a what? An idol. Before Moses can even make it back down the mountain, the people of God have given up on Yahweh and they've created their own idol to worship once again. You know why? Wilderness. It's too uncomfortable. They're not willing to wait for Moses to come back to have a relationship with Yahweh. So instead they make their own idol. This will do. We'll settle for this. It's the same temptation that Jesus has. And Jesus says, I won't give in to it. Pastor D.L. Moody said it this way. Whatever you love more than God, 
that is your idol. Whatever you love more than God, that's your idol. There's actually an ancient Jewish legend. And this Jewish legend speaks about a man named Abraham. If you know who Abraham is in the Old Testament, he's the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham was actually led by God away from his father's household to come and follow him. And he begins the whole journey of the Jewish people with Yahweh. But the legend says that before Abraham left, he was gonna leave his father's household, which just didn't mean the house structure, meant his father's way of doing things. His father would have worshiped pagan gods as did everybody in that particular area. He would have had idols. And the legend says that before Abraham left, he went to his father's idol room and there would have been idols everywhere inside. He took a stick and he beat every one of the idols to pieces, except for the tallest one. After he beat all of the idols to pieces, he took the stick and he put it into the hands of the tallest statue. Abraham's father came back. His name was Terah. And he said, what has happened here? And Abraham said, I think it's very clear. It's a joke. Terah's like, it's impossible. How, how could this have happened? Every one of these statues was made by human hands out of stone, out of wood, out of, out of metal. This could never have happened. And then Abraham looked at his father and he said, then why do you worship them? Here's my biggest concern this morning. In my own life and maybe in some others' lives within the room today, that Satan is offering us certain lies that we are taking hook, line, and sinker. Believing that if we were to give all of our time, energy, attention, and affection toward these things, these idols, these lesser gods, then somehow we will feel fulfilled. Somehow we'll have all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. But the problem is there's no amount of money in the bank no amount of fame, no relationship, not that house on the lake, no website that could ever possibly, possibly fulfill you. They always overpromise and they always underdeliver. They'll never make us happy and they will never truly put us on top. It's not true. These idols don't deliver. The Bible says it like this in a different way. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Matthew 16 says this. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What good would it be if you were to gain everything, all the things that you're looking for? But in order to do so, you'd have to exchange your soul. There are some people I know who have nothing, but in some way they possess everything. And there are some other people I know who have everything, yet they possess nothing. We can have it all, the Bible says, but if it's exchanged for our soul, we've lost it. Here's a good question to ask yourself. If I were to give my time, attention, energy, and affection toward this thing, no matter what I gain, will it cost me my soul? Will it cost me more than I'm willing to give? If this thing becomes the object of my worship, simply because I'm looking for comfort, stability, a solid place, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, apart from God, do I run the risk of losing everything in the process? Will I lose my dignity, my character, my integrity? If Jesus gives into this temptation, he loses it all. The whole mission is over before it begins. If I worship this thing, this lesser God, this idol in my life, will it cost me everything? So Satan says to Jesus, hey, you can have all of it. 
All of it is yours. All you have to do is trust me, worship me to provide for all that you need. But Jesus demands and responds the same way he does every other one of the temptations by quoting scripture. Deuteronomy 6.13 is what Jesus quotes. He says, no, we worship God, we worship him only, and we only serve him. Nothing else can happen. And in doing so, Satan is defeated, Jesus is victorious. Satan leaves and Jesus is attended to. And then Jesus' ministry begins. Here's why. Because he's victorious in this temptation. It's immediately following this temptation that Jesus' three-year ministry begins. And it leads all the way up to something called Holy Week, which is where we find ourselves today. It leads all the way to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Because here's what Jesus understood from the beginning. I can never receive the kingdoms of the world, all their splendor, by exerting power and control. But instead, it takes sacrifice. That's what real power looks like. I know where I'm headed. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm headed to the cross. And so Jesus ends up entering Jerusalem in John chapter 12 on Palm Sunday, on this day, leading up the Holy Week all the way to the crucifixion next Sunday. Here's what it says in John chapter 12, verse 12 through 15. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival of Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, a couple things. There's a great number of people who have come to Jerusalem as Jesus is entering in. And as they've come to welcome Jesus, they've done it in a specific kind of way. They're waving palm branches as he enters into the city. Now, you saw our children do this at the beginning of the service. But can you imagine a great number of people outside the city of Jerusalem as Jesus comes in riding on a donkey and they're waving palm branches at him. And they're saying a specific word. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, you may have sang the word Hosanna in some worship songs at some point in time, but the word Hosanna literally means save us now. Save us now. Now, to really understand what's happening here, you have to understand the background of Jerusalem at this point in time. For many, many years, the city of Jerusalem has been under oppression, under control of the Roman government. They have seen this as a horrible, heinous thing. And a lot of things have taken place when they're like, they were horrible and they were heinous. They were ready for Rome to be overthrown. In fact, when they read the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah who would one day come, most Jewish folks believe what that meant was a new king was going to come who's going to overthrow Rome and put Israel back on top, give them back control and power. You see, Israel was living in a wilderness time and they were sick of it. And so when they hear about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, all the miracles that he had done, all the things that had taken place, in particular what's mentioned in the passage is the raising of Lazarus, they believe this might be the one. This might be the guy. And so as he comes into the city, they're waving palm branches at him. Now some history behind these palm branches. First and foremost, this would have been a kind of plant that grew in a place called Engedi, which was a desert oasis not far from Jerusalem. 50-foot palm trees, they would cut these fronds and they would use them as a way of signaling victory. In fact, all throughout history, this would be done. If you had a king who would go conquer a certain nation as they came back into town, they would wave palm fronds in front of them, signaling victory and conquer and power. 
And as the Grecian games took place, when someone would win in the Grecian games, they would come back home. They would wave palm fronds in front of them as a way of signifying their victory, their power, their grandeur. So as Jesus comes to town, this is the kind of greeting that he gets. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Bring victory. The Jewish people were remembering not long before this as well, when they had a victory against an, an enemy. They would do the same thing. They would wave palm fronds. Here's what they're saying to Jesus. Would you come and bring the same kind of victory that's happened before? Would you finally come and overthrow Rome? Would you save us from this oppression? Would you put us back on top? Would you give us control finally once again? But here's the problem. Jesus is coming to save them, but he's not coming to save them the way they think he is. He has no interest in coming and shedding Roman blood. In fact, the only interest he has, the only blood that will be shed will be his own. He doesn't come in power, but instead he comes in humility. The first indication that people would have had that something wasn't right here is that Jesus comes riding on a young donkey, a donkey's colt or a young donkey. I can imagine the disciples and all the crowds being like, Jesus, what's up with the donkey? Because for someone to ride in in front of palm fronds, victorious, full of grandeur, they would ride on a war horse, not a donkey, let alone a young one. And so I can picture the, the, the scene of Jesus riding in on this donkey into town and people are like, something's not right here. This is not the guy that's gonna defeat Rome. Something's up. So Jesus comes, he comes instead showing peace, humility, not supremacy and might. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about what this Messiah would come and what he would do. The rest of the story says this in John chapter 12, verse 16 through 19. At first, his disciples didn't understand all of this, and you wouldn't have either. What is happening? They don't understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, did they realize all these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard what he had performed, the sign, went out to meet him. And hear this. So the Pharisees said to one another, see this? This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Look how the Pharisees respond to what Jesus is doing. Something's not right here. Like this is not what we calculated here. And not only that, but the whole world is going toward him. What do those words sound like? Matthew 4. Satan says, if you bow down and you worship me, if you give me all of your time, energy, attention, and affection, I'll give you the whole world. It'll be yours. All the splendors of the world will be yours. And Jesus said, no, this is not how this goes. It's not about power. It's about sacrifice. It's not about taking up control. It's about surrendering control. And Jesus exemplifies this all the way till he enters in Jerusalem. This is what true power looks like. When you find yourself in a wilderness place, it's not about taking up control, it's about surrendering control. If you're a parent in the room, you might be able to relate with me that the place I see this and I experience this the most, this wilderness season, taking up control versus surrendering it is in parenting my children. Because so badly as a parent, I don't know about you, but I'm just like, if you just listen and let me control your life, everything would be fine. We would never argue, we would never complain. It'd be utopia. You would never get any candy, but that'd be okay because everything would be fine. But as you know, if you're a parent, that's not how it works. I mean, a couple weeks ago, one of my children and I got into an argument and it was 
over the top and we said things that were hurtful to one another. And I was angry, I was frustrated for the very reason that I just explained. Because they, they don't listen. They're, they're children, they don't listen. And so it was close to bedtime, which was part of the problem. Things weren't progressing as fastly as I wanted them to. And so my child went to bed and so I went and got ready and it was eating me up inside. I'm like, is this really what a father looks like? Like, let alone a father. Is this really what someone who's a Christ follower looks like? Like trying to take control of the situation? I think it's, it's supposed to be something different here. And so I went into the room and I laid down in the bed and I was just like, hey, listen, I'm sorry. I probably had reasons that I could try to argue with and say, listen, I'm sorry, but I was right. And I just want you to, to know that. But I tried really hard not to do that. I just wanted to come and lay and just like, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said those things to you. I shouldn't have got so upset about that. I was wrong. I apologize. You know, surrender it. So I'm laying in bed and my kid rolls over and puts his arm on me. You know, and I was able to just kind of lay next to him and just whisper in his ear, listen, I love you. I love you. I give up control a hundred times over just to be able to tell you that I love you. Now in a week, we'll probably argue again but I'm willing to surrender it again and again and again and again. You know, all the places in our life where things feel out of control, like, we, like it's chaotic and we, we can't have what we want in the way we want, the timing that we want, too often we have this temptation to want to take up control, to control something, whether it's our kids, our spouse, our jobs, whatever it might be. And in doing so, so much energy, time, attention, and affection goes towards that thing. We end up worshiping it, hoping for stability, hoping for some kind of control, hoping for some kind of comfort. And the problem is, it will fail us every single time. And it's how Jesus approaches us. He, he comes to us, not with a demonstration of power. He doesn't berate us for our lack of faith or our hardened hearts. He doesn't get upset with our foolish decisions or angry at our selfish motives. But instead, he lays aside heaven, he pulls on skin and humanity, and he comes to walk among us to save us. But not from some military power, but instead from the, the, the power of sin and death. It's the greatest wilderness. It's the greatest power and control. And he defeats it. And the Pharisees, all they can say is, look, the whole world is going to him. You know why? Not because of power and control, but because of humility and sacrifice. That's where the power resides. The great reformer Martin Luther said it this way, there's two kinds of power. There's right-handed power and there's left-handed power. Right-handed power is power over, and left-handed power is power under. One looks like a war horse, and the other one looks like a young donkey. One looks like the sword, the other one looks like the cross. One looks like a king on the throne, and the other one looks like incarnation, God in the flesh. And this is why Jesus is worthy of our worship in the wilderness. It's because he is powerful enough to defeat all of evil, and all of death, and yet he is safe enough to, enough to whisper into our ear that he loves us. And he'll give up surrender control over and over again in order to love us and to rescue us. So when we find ourselves in these difficult times, these times of trial, times of tests, we wanna grab the boat and get back out or go to the shore. Instead, we can trust that the struggle and the discomfort that we experience, we can worship Jesus in the middle of it. 
We worship in the wilderness when we trust that Jesus has the last word and the final say. It's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. You may have heard of her before. She was in a terrible accident, a diving accident that left her a quadriplegic at the age of 17. And in spite of her physical limitations, she became an accomplished author, artist, and speaker. And over 25 years ago, she married her husband named Ken. And for, for her wedding, she had planned to come down the center aisle in her motorized wheelchair to meet him at the front. But before the doors were open and she entered the sanctuary, she was sitting in her wheelchair and she began to become distressed because everything was going wrong. She had turned the wheelchair around and had grabbed her dress, left an oil stain on it, and torn the dress before she could even come into the room. The flowers that were in her lap had slipped down and were lodged now between her leg and the chair to the side, and she was so disappointed. In the middle of her disappointment, all of a sudden, the doors to the auditorium opened, and she saw for the first time her husband standing at the front of the sanctuary. Here was the man who was committing his life and his love to her. Joni later said this, once I saw Ken's face, all I could think about was him. Everything else, the people in the church, the flowers that were sitting a little askew in my lap, the fact that my dress didn't fall right when I was in the wheelchair, the grease marks, the rip in the gown, all of it, she said, paled in comparison to him. I just wonder, when we find ourselves in a wilderness place with everything falling apart, everything going wrong? Like, where are our eyes fixed? Who are we looking at? What would happen if we, if we worshiped Jesus? We, we turned our time, attention, energy, and affection towards him. There's something special that happens when we realize that on our worst day, Jesus is still in control. That our fallen flowers, our torn dress, our divorce, our diagnosis, our mistakes, our addiction, our selfishness, our disobedience, our disappointments, they don't have the last word and the final say. Jesus does. Jesus has the last word and the final say. And so because of that, we choose to worship him in the middle of the wilderness. It's the wisdom that we find in the wilderness that he is the only one who's worthy of our worship. Would you join me? Let's pray together. God, forgive me for the times that I allow my time, attention, energy, and affection to be pointed toward things that are lesser, toward idols that will never truly fulfill, that won't offer me control or stability or fulfillment, the things I'm looking for, but instead, God, I pray you would help me, my heart and my mind, to be turned towards you. I pray for every person here this morning, God, that we would learn this lesson, this piece of wisdom from the wilderness, that in the most chaotic and crazy times, we can look to you, our stability, our comfort, our joy, our fulfillment is found in you and you alone. So God, I pray you'd help us to take every idol that's a part of our life and throw it to the side and fix our eyes on you. Lord, we love you today. As we take this moment, as we sing this last song, God, I pray that, that all inhibition be thrown to the side, that we would just allow ourselves to raise our hands, to close our eyes, to connect with you in worship without concern for anyone else around us because God, you, you are worthy of our worship today.
We love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.